And a good Sunday morning to you. Welcome to Healthy Matters, presented every Sunday by Hennepin County Medical Center. Uh, Dr. Hilden taking the uh, holiday off today. He'll be back next week, but filling in for Dr. David Hilden is Dr. Sam Ives, who's been our guest host a, a number of times here on the CCO. Dr. Ives works in both inpatient and outpatient internal medicine. He has particular interest in medical education. You, you work with the residents and medical students alike, do you not? That's right. So we get a lot of the students from the University of Minnesota coming across the river that, to join that, us. Is that enjoyable? It's great. You know, uh, they're very obviously intelligent students, so they can push you to keep learning even, you know. It's good for you too, isn't it? Yeah, as opposed to be out in independent practice, you get a, someone who's, you know, f- fresh off of learning this material to make sure you like stay sharp as well. Exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. So. That's great. Well, it's great to have you filling in for Dr. Hilden today. And it is, I mentioned earlier, an open line show today, which means your general health questions for Dr. Ives. Let me give you the phone number and the text number. You can do that right now. Six five. We've cleared the lines, by the way. 651-989-9226. If you want to phone in your general health questions for Dr. Ives or send us a text at 81807, 81807. So I was driving in early this morning, Doctor. I was wondering if you, when I asked Dr. Hilden about this from time to time, I don't hear much in the news lately about uh, the flu. Are you seeing any evidence of that at the hospital? Well, that's a good question, Denny. You know, we have at the beginning of the flu season, we're trying to decide, you know, how bad the year is sure. going to be. And so far, I would say it's, you know, uh, it's been some, but not overwhelming. So peak flu season isn't till after the holidays. So we still don't know quite yet whether or not we'll have a huge season ahead of us. I did work the day after Thanksgiving, and I will tell you a lot of people are feeling unwell whether or not they have the flu. <laughs> So we had a lot of Could colds, be from some coughs, other stores, sniffles. Yeah, fortunately, most of it wasn't stomach problems after the holiday, but a lot of people just having the crud as far as congestion and so forth. So You know what Dr. Hilden likes to do when he has a special guest uh, as yourself? Uh, get a little background. I, we've asked you this before, as he has. Uh, where did you do? Take us back when you first started your choice in medicine. Where did you do your studying initially? Well, uh I I went to medical school in California at the University of California, San Francisco. So like many good Minnesota boys, I decided to leave for a little bit, but then returned to the homeland. So I came back to do my residency at Hennepin County, and this is now my uh, 12th year there, including that. So I've been getting to be an old dog at the facility. <laughs> so the good part about it is we have very uh, bright colleagues that I work with and a very nice work environment. And like you said, we do a lot of teaching. So that's something yes. that keeps me there in terms of pushing you to keep learning. You know, even then, I too am a local guy, but uh, even I, after you, uh, Hennepin County has started the show years ago, I think we're getting close to 10 years, I think. Uh, it, it still amazes me uh, what a great resource that uh, Hennepin is and your hospital and all the clinics and everything. What a great resource and the talent you guys have. Yeah, we're very blessed in Minnesota. In general, we have a lot of great health systems, including Health Partners, Park Nicollet, the Alina system, and I'd say HCMC and the outlying clinics often have a lot of expertise to just hold up to any of those. Yeah, I should say. If you have a, a general health question, call us or text us, 651-989-9226. Uh, text number is 81807. Text says, can you explain stage 3 renal kidney disease and the final outcome? Is it curable or is it fatal? So kidney disease is the kidneys clean the blood. And so when the kidneys aren't working well, it can cause different problems. And so some people are familiar with dialysis, which is what we do to do the job of the kidneys when they're not working. 
Stage three kidney disease means the kidneys are kind of operating at, you might think of it as they're operating at 75%. So the kidneys still have a fair amount of their function, but they've slowed down some. In general, it can be progressive. Often the causes of kidney disease, the top two are high blood pressure and diabetes. So it's not curable per se. We don't have something that fixes the kidneys, but it can be slowed down with good control of diabetes or blood pressure. So if you have a different cause of kidney disease where things are dropping quickly in terms of the function, that's something that a doctor would need to look at quickly. A lot of times I'll see patients that are 70 years old that have had stage three kidney disease for 20 years. And because they're taking care of their blood pressure, it's something that would not be fatal, that would not be progressive. Let's talk a little bit about that blood pressure in the news as we talked last week on the show about these new numbers now. Tell us about that. So uh, if anyone's paid attention to the evening news or reads the newspaper, they see that there's a new blood pressure guideline. So high blood pressure is one of the most common among any, any type of specialty, the most common clinical condition or diagnosis someone would have. And this new guideline is very controversial because it lowers the number. So we used to say the top number or systolic blood pressure was supposed to be less than 140. And now for some groups who are kind of deemed higher risk, uh, the new guideline said, well, it should be less than 130. So all of a sudden, you know, um, millions of Americans woke up in the morning and they didn't have high blood pressure before and now they now do. they do. So uh, the keys to remember about the guideline are to focus on what's good health in general. Rather than is my number 139 or 141, the keys are someone should always be trying to avoid smoking. Someone should always be getting a lot of exercise. Someone should always be watching what they eat. In general, if they're doing those key things, which are free, by the way, those things in general have no side effects. Getting out and going for a walk after Thanksgiving has no downside. And in general, that's going to maintain good health more so than getting to an exact number on the dial. I don't know if you caught this. Maybe it didn't surprise me so much, but we were watching television yesterday, last night, about uh, this therapy of instead of medication, going outside. Did you see that at all, that particular feature? (laughs) Well, in general, there's been new interest in saying, you know, we usually think of exercise as really being good for the muscles. And there's more studies, one after another, that are coming out that are showing that, for example, as people age, that keeping a sharp brain or decreasing the risk of dementia and other things, it's actually a good exercise helps with a lot of different conditions. So it's not just about having a toned body for the beach. But a lot of things about exercise are actually helping heart function, helping brain function. So there's all sorts of reasons to be doing that. In, in this particular case in the show is, is uh, uh, talking about depression or lessening, just getting a hearing water and birds. <laughs> sun. So instead of, like you said, getting all the sun on the beach, you don't need necessarily that. Right. So, uh, you know, some even a small amount of time outside, I think, can have huge benefits for you in different ways. Very good. We have text messages coming in. If you want to ask your general health question of Dr. Ives, by all means, call us 651-989-9226 or send a text 81807. Let's see. A text says, how is bursitis diagnosed and treated? I have intermittent pain near my hip, throbbing pain at night that keeps me awake. What's bursitis? So bursitis is the bursa is kind of a pad or so forth that's around a joint. So you have a little bursa that's near your elbow, one near your knee, one near your hip. So bursitis is just inflammation of that little pad or sac of fluid. 
Uh, hip bursitis is something that's a little tricky to diagnose just by reading the text. Sure. So I would say that in general, bursitis is diagnosed by a, a detailed exam where you would feel pain over the area. And so a doctor could distinguish, is this arthritis in the joint or is it bursitis related to something kind of near the joint? So hip pain at night, that certainly could be a cause of bursitis. That would be something that you'd talk to a doctor about. They'd want to do a detailed exam of your hip. So that would be the way to kind of diagnose those two. And the bursitis might have its own treatment. Okay. 651-989-9226 or send a text 81807. Dr. Sam Ives filling in for Dr. Hilden this morning. Uh, let's see. Well, a lot of good text messages. Is it uh, – what are your thoughts as a text about the long-term use of methotrexate for arthritis? What is that stuff? So methotrexate is an anti-inflammatory medicine. It's not used for garden variety arthritis. It's used for rheumatoid arthritis. So a lot of people have wear and tear on the joints. That's often called just arthritis or osteoarthritis. Rheumatoid arthritis is a special condition. It's actually fairly common, but it's something that's uh, used for inflammation due to rheumatoid arthritis. Methotrexate is one of the oldest medicines we have. It is actually one of the safest medicines. So in terms of long-term use of methotrexate, there are a lot of new kids on the block. So in terms of if you're a drug company, you want to advertise your new medicine that costs a lot more. But methotrexate has a long track record of doing very well for rheumatoid arthritis. In fact, if you have, were seeing a doctor for rheumatoid arthritis and they didn't start you on that as a first line, some people might scratch their heads and say, well, why aren't you using the tried and true mm-hmm. thing first before at least getting the new drug off the shelf or trying something that might have more complications? It's a very safe long-term medicine for a lot of know. people. 651-989-9226 if you want to use the phone. But a lot of folks, as you can see, doctor, uh, like the idea of, uh, of the text message. And we were looking at that screen now as they're, as they're coming. And that number, by the way, is 81807. We may have a lot of listeners that are visiting family and friends this, uh, this holiday weekend. All right, let's see what's next here. Uh, is it ever advisable, Tech says, for a 99-year-old to have corrective surgery for rectal relapse? So uh, rectal prolapse is prolapse. a condition where the normal muscles that are kind of holding everything in place and the intestine aren't working. Uh, the main thing that's more important than someone's age when considering surgery is how frail or how active they are. So I happen to be blessed with a 95-year-old grandmother. She actually is able to go for a walk each day and is fairly with it cognitively. That type of person is going to do better with surgery than a 75-year-old who's bed-bound. So if you're considering having a surgery as an older individual, a lot of simple questions are going to help your doctor decide if it's safe for you. For example, could you lift up a chair and carry it across the room? Or could you walk up a flight of stairs without you know, having to stop to catch your breath? Those types of questions, rather than just your age as one number, are going to say whether or not a surgery is going to be safe to undertake. So even an older individual might say, well, you know, in terms of my quality of life, I need to have this eye surgery or knee surgery or what have you. But in general, someone who's very frail is going to have a higher risk of having complications from a surgery. A lot of variables to consider. For exactly. Not just the age, like you said. You know what? It's time for a quick break here, doctor. So hang on. Dr. Sam Ives is filling in for Dr. David Hilden today. When we come back, we'll go to the phones and pick up more of your text messages as well. Uh, on Healthy Matters this morning, it's an open line show, 651-989-9226, or send us a text at 81807. 
We expect a high here in the Twin Cities of 47 today, maybe 57 tomorrow. Right now in CCO, it's 30. Hey, good morning. Welcome back to Hennepin County Medical Center's Healthy Matters. This is an open line show this holiday weekend. Dr. David Hilden taking the day off. Dr. Sam Ives filling in for Dr. Hilden. Uh, and again, it's an open line show. Your general health questions. We're not going to talk about any particular topic. Uh, I'll tell you what, doctor, let's go to the phones. I think Vinny in Blaine is first up. What is your question for the doctor, Vinny? I had a deep vein uh, thrombosis and a tiny vein in my uh, lower right leg. And, uh, I never took medication for it because I had brain surgery and it went away for a while. Is it, and it was in a tiny vein in my right leg. Is it possible for it to come back in the same place? Okay. So, uh, Vinny's question has to do with something called a DVT or a deep vein thrombosis. So what a DVT means is that you have a clot in one of the veins. So this can be problematic just because it can cause swelling in the leg and a lot of pain. And in rare cases, it can be quite dangerous if the clot moves. So if the clot moves from the vein in the leg backwards towards the heart. Uh, in general, if you've had a clot, the first question a doctor is going to want to think about is, is it provoked? Meaning, was there a condition that brought it on? For example, if someone was immobile for a period of time and their leg was in an old-fashioned cast and traction, then once they're out of the cast, they're not going to be at any risk of that clot coming back. Vinny, in your case, if the DVT or clot happened because you were undergoing this brain surgery and you were less mobile than usual, then the risk that it comes back is pretty low. If a clot comes on, though, kind of out of the blue, someone says they're pretty active, walking around, and they all of a sudden get a clot in their leg, then that's the type of thing that makes the doctor think you're more likely to form another clot. So that type of situation, uh, it's more likely that the clot would have some risk of coming back. The risk might not be huge, but if it's what we'd call unprovoked, if you've never had a clear reason of what brought it on, that would be different from someone saying, I took a round-the-world flight, and then after the flight, I got a clot in my leg. Very good. Thanks, Vinny. Uh, we're going to get back to the text messages uh, in a moment, but I want to uh, bring in Anna uh, from Minneapolis. Anna, thanks for waiting. What can we do for you? Hi. I, you were talking about kidney disease and that smoking and high blood pressure is a problem with that, but is that also with the liver or is it only associated with alcohol? And can I ask, Anna, is your question, is is smoking or high blood pressure cause liver problems? Is that your specific question? Yeah. I mean, you just mentioned for the kidneys, but I was thinking about liver because, like, if you take too much Tylenol, they say don't, you shouldn't because it's hard on your liver. Yeah, so this is a confusing point. So both the liver and the kidney do 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 a function of kind of cleaning the blood. So the liver cleans out a lot of the food that we eat. And so if you eat something like you had a poisonous mushroom, the liver would protect you from getting sick from it. In general, uh, it just so happens that kidneys are more involved in blood pressure regulation. So in general, high blood pressure uh, affects the kidneys a little bit more than affects the liver. Now, you mentioned, Anna, some good points. There are a lot of medicines that can have an effect on the liver, and you mentioned Tylenol being one if you take too much Tylenol. In general, a doctor has a guideline of something like taking less than four grams per day or sometimes less than that. 
So in general, uh, smoking and high blood pressure have more of an effect on the kidney than the liver, but there are other things that we watch out for for liver disease, including uh, heavy alcohol use is something that can damage the liver and certain medications. So those are things that can cause uh, more chronic liver problems rather than kidney problems that were mentioned earlier. All right, very good. Thanks, Anna. I don't want to forget our texters either. Here's one that came in earlier. Do you always need antibiotics for strep throat? In general, you don't always need antibiotics. So what antibiotics are doing is shortening the duration of symptoms. Uh, so, you know, in general, before we had antibiotics, uh, not, you know, it wasn't as if back in the time of the dinosaurs, you know, uh, humans didn't just drop dead of strep throat. So in general, you know, the strep throat would be a severe throat infection and you'd get better, your body would heal on its own. What a shot of penicillin does is it shortens the duration of those symptoms. So there are specific cases where you would definitely need an antibiotic to prevent complications. Strep throat isn't necessarily one of them. A texter, and then we'll get back to the phones. Uh, is 2,000 units of vitamin D daily a good therapeutic dose for seasonal affective disorder? That's a whole different issue than not getting enough sunshine, I suppose. It's all part, all connected, isn't it, for SAD? That's right. So seasonal affective disorder is when people feel particularly unwell or more depressed with the shorter days or winter season. In general, 2,000 units of vitamin D is a good daily dose to be taking. A lot of people take vitamin D in the winter months, particularly when there's less sunlight available and we're all bundled up with coats, hats, scarves, etc., where we're not getting that much vitamin D from the sun. So a lot of people might say, you know, something to get for the winter months in particular. So 2,000 is okay. That's a good dose. All right. Back to the phones we go. Mary is calling from Minneapolis with a question. Good morning, Mary. Yes, good morning. My question is, I've been uh, a good friend and visiting a 93-year-old woman in a nursing home. Uh, about a week ago, I went, and one of her hands was swollen and red, and uh, they did x-ray it. There were no fractures. Now, yesterday, I went, and the other hand is red and swollen, and I'm being told she has cellulitis. I know nothing about that, and uh, so if you could educate us about cellulitis. Sure, great question, Mary. So cellulitis is just a fancy word for an infection of the skin. So in general, we worry about cellulitis uh, where bacteria that are normal and healthy on your skin, like strep or staph, get underneath the skin and cause an infection. You mentioned a couple of the key symptoms. So sometimes people will have a red area of their skin. It could be swollen. In general, in severe cases, someone would have a fever and have a lot of pain. I will say that just based on the small description, um, we worry less about cellulitis when it's on both sides because it sort of would be bad luck to say you're bad luck enough to get bacteria under the skin and now you're thinking it somehow creeped under the skin on both sides at the same time. If someone had a rash or redness on both hands, I'd be thinking more about something like an allergy or something like a reaction to a skin product rather than cellulitis. Uh, cellulitis, like a lot of infections, is just treated with an oral antibiotic if it's not severe. So if it's on both hands, you might want to see a doctor about it and say, is this truly cellulitis or something different than a skin infection? 
You know what we're going to do? We're just about uh, ready for a break, Doctor. I think maybe before we pick up on any calls or text messages, uh, we don't want to shorten anybody's questions. So we'll do this. We have another half hour of the show to go. And it is an open line show today. Dr. Sam Ives filling in for Dr. David Hilden, answering your general health questions on this open line show. Let me give you the uh, phone number and the text number. We'll uh, we'll t- come back with both of those. 651 989 and the text number is 81807. Wanted to mention before we head to CBS News that Hennepin County Medical Center, as we've mentioned before, provides hospice resources to patients by partnering with Hospice of the Twin Cities. Now, hospice care brings support, brings comfort and care to people with life-limiting illness wherever they live, including grief support and resources for family and caregivers. You can call Hospice of the Twin Cities for more information. Uh, the number is 763-531-2424. I'll say that again, 763-531-2424. Or you can visit the website, hospiceofthetwincities.com. Speaking of the Twin Cities, a few clouds now. 30 is our Twin City temperature rating. Sunshine will return today with highs near 47. If you have some extra time off tomorrow after tonight's low of 33, we're going to have 57, the high tomorrow here in the Twin Cities. Right now, a few clouds on CCO 30. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Welcome to Healthy Matters, presented by Hennepin County Medical Center, a network of neighborhood clinics, specialty centers, hospitals, and Minnesota's Level 1 Adult and Pediatric Trauma Center. Please remember we can only give general medical advice during the program, and every case is unique. We urge you to consult with your personal physician if you have health concerns. Now, here's Denny Law with your host, Dr. David Hilden, internal medicine physician with Hennepin County Medical Center, with more Healthy Matters. Good morning. Welcome back to this portion of Hennepin County Medical Center's Healthy Matters. This is an open line show today. Dr. David Hilden taking the day off, but Dr. Sam Ives is back filling in for Dr. Hilden. Dr. Hilden will return next week. But Dr. Ives, if you're joining us a little bit late, works in both inpatient and outpatient internal medicine at Hennepin County Medical Center. He has particular interest in medical education, working with residents, medical students, hematology, and the social determinants of health. What is that last phrase? Well, in general, we think about the social determinants of health means that most of your health, Denny, relates less to just, you know, whether your doctor gets an A plus or a B minus, but it relates more to where do you live? Do you live in a safe neighborhood? Do you have, Ah. you know, what type of food is available in your neighborhood? You say if, you know, if you lived in an unsafe neighborhood, the doctor could recommend going outside for a long walk. But if it's not something that's, you know, recommended after dark, that's going to be large impact in terms of your education, what you eat and so forth. So a lot of things, you know, in terms of the impact, I'd like to flatter myself and say my impact is large. But a lot of people's health has more to do with, you know, do they have a good family structure? What's their education level? What's their background? That type of stuff makes a bigger difference than necessarily whether or not your doctor picks medicine A or B a lot of the time. Good point. Good point. Well, it's nice to have Dr. Ives back filling in for Dr. Hilden today. And as I said, it's an open line show today. Your uh, general health questions by phone or by text. We have both, as you can see, Dr. Ives. So let's uh, let's get back to it. Bernita is uh, calling from New Brighton. Bernita, what is your question? Oh, hi. Uh, I'm 83 with AFib, 
and maybe the doctor just answered my question. It's about medication, and the doctors decided to, I've been on Coumadin for several, quite a few years, four or five, and they just changed it to Eliquis. And I'm wondering if that's a good idea. I am also scheduled for ovarian surgery. So I'm just curious if that's, I don't have any trouble with either one. Okay, so uh, the question is about medications for AFib or atrial fibrillation. So AFib is uh, one of the most common abnormal heart rhythms, and it, it increases with age. So Bernita saying she's in her 80s, it gets more common in 70 and 80-year-olds than it is in 40 or 50-year-olds. Uh, there are a lot of new medications for AFib. So Coumadin or Warfarin has been around for a very long time. So unfortunately, it's a medicine that's very finicky. So if you have spinach salad for five days in a row, uh, your level of the medicine will go down. And then if the next few days you eat only hamburgers, the level of the medicine will go up. So it's a very hard medicine to manage. That said, Bernita said a lot of people have been on it and managed it. The main thing to consider when you're considering a new medicine like Eliquis or Apixaban, a lot of these have new names that are new medications, is if you have problems with the old medicine at all. The new medicines are fairly safe. Uh, they've been well tested. However, a lot of them don't reverse as easily. So if you have a bleeding problem, let's say you fall and have a big bruise, they're harder to reverse the effect or have an antidote type effect. So in general, I'd say what you'd want to talk to your doctor about is if you're having any problems with the Coumadin. In general, you know, you don't want to mess with success. So if you're doing well on your medicine, you may not want to change to one of the new kids. But the, the new the new kids on the block there, you, you don't have to get tested like you do with the Coumadin, right? That's right. So uh, AFib, the big downer is you have to get your blood tested frequently to make sure you're in this appropriate range. And so the new medicines, the real selling point is you don't need to do that. I will say, though, that you know, as someone ages, we don't know exactly what the effect is in an 80, 85-year-old, 90-year-old. A lot of these medicines weren't tested That's in a true. lot of older individuals. So you might want to at least talk to your doctor about, is this a safe choice? Is it really a big problem for you to get your blood tested? Okay. Very good. Uh, thanks, Bernita. Jerry in Stillwater is next on the phone. Now, go ahead, Jerry. Thank you. Uh, yes. I have a question for my wife about diabetes. She's 84, and uh, she took a glucose test um, in back in the summer, and I think it was 191. And she took one... Uh, about a month ago, it was 121, uh, and and the doctor said 121 was uh, diabetes. But the records show that it isn't. What are the is 121 considered glucose test diabetes? So Jerry's question is about the criteria or how you define diabetes. In general, if you had a fasting blood sugar that was quite high above. Uh, 125, that might be the case. And 121 is kind of in the borderline. The one thing that doctors have now, which is a very good test, is a test called an A1C. The A1C measures the last three months of your blood sugar, so it's going to tell us about November, October, and September, and it's like an average of all three of those. So if you imagine the average temperature for the last three months, you'd say, what that's like, it's going to tell you the average blood sugar. So what your doctor would want to do or what your wife should have done is this A1C test. Then if it's kind of borderline of do you really have it or not, the A1C will tell you, oh, yes, on average, morning, evening, 
midnight at noon, what's your average blood sugar over this time? So that can really help us define diabetes. I know we got more callers and I want to get to it. I don't want to forget our texters either, doctor. Uh, here's one. It says, I have been diagnosed with degenerative disc disease in my neck and lower back. What does that mean for a person as they age? Uh, this texter is in early the early 60s. So in general, degenerative disc disease just means there's wear and tear on the discs or the area in the spine, it might mean absolutely nothing. So if we took an x-ray of every 60-year-old, we'd see a lot of wear and tear. What's more important than what it looks like is how you feel. So if the person who texts it in says, I have severe neck pain, then that degenerative disc disease might be significant. In the absence of symptoms, just seeing a little wear and tear has no problem. So if you're driving a 2000 model car and it's still driving fine, you do not need to worry about whether or not there's a little rust on the sides. You want to keep driving the thing. Same thing with degenerative disc disease. If your neck's feeling well, it really does not matter in the least if there's wear and tear on the joint. That's expected. Good analogy. I like that. Uh, Tim and Blaine has a question on the phone. Uh, Tim, thanks for waiting. What is your question for the doctor? Yes. <clears throat> My uh, wife has uh, a restless leg um, in the uh, during the night, and I was wondering what causes that and what uh, medication or other treatments can be used to uh, correct that or improve that. So restless leg syndrome is a syndrome where people have abnormal movements at night or jerky movements of the legs, almost twitching. The first thing to consider is whether or not you actually have the condition or you just roll around in bed. So because the condition says restless leg syndrome, I encounter a lot of patients that just say, well, I have restless legs. Uh, and that might mean, well, does it mean you bunch the covers in the morning or what the problem is? So the first thing is to say, do you actually have the condition? So there are criteria that a doctor would go through. The most common cause of the condition is actually low iron or iron deficiency. So before someone is on a long-term medicine, your wife would want to have her iron levels checked, which can cause these abnormal leg movements. In general, because the movements are, are made by nerves, there are other problems of the nervous system that can cause restless leg syndrome. So the, the short answer is that just because you feel restless in bed doesn't mean you have restless legs. The second thing is if you do have this, you want to get your iron levels checked. And then the third thing is in rare cases, there are other long-term medicines for someone who really has abnormal leg movements or problems of the nervous system. So it's a little complicated to sort out. But you at Hennepin, and I've learned this personally, have a great sleep study area. What do you call it? That's the Hennepin Sleep Sleep Center. So yes. that's that's an area where, you know, saying rather than someone telling me secondhand, well, when I sleep, X happens or Y happens, what someone would do is they would actually, you know, sleep in in a study area where the doctors would be able to monitor them often with video footage to say, are they having certain conditions during sleep? One of the common one would be sleep apnea or trouble breathing at night. Restless leg syndrome is another common cause of evaluation or even simple insomnia. So it is an area where if someone was having trouble getting to sleep or staying asleep, they have a very comprehensive approach where they're looking at all types of things that might be doing because this is such a common and disturbing problem for a I lot of people. So. All right, test, uh, Texter says this, can you test your thyroid at home? In general, the only way to test your thyroid is through a blood test. So if you had a situation where you had a visiting nurse 
to do it. Uh, otherwise, there's really no good way to test yourself at home. There's no way to tell what your thyroid's like beyond saying doing a blood test for it. So it's got to be done by a lab. All right, very good. Hang on, doctor. Dr. Sam Eyes filling in for Dr. David Hilden today. It's an open line show, and we're taking your phone calls and text messages on uh, what you want to talk about. Few clouds in the Twin Cities this Sunday morning, 33 the temp, heading for 47 later today. You stay tuned to 830-WCCO. And good morning. Welcome back to this portion of Hennepin County Medical Center's Healthy Matters. It's an open line show today, uh, filling in for Dr. David Hilden's Dr. Sam Ives. And uh, we have, as you can see, plenty of texts and callers as well. We'll get to as many as we can. Uh, please talk, the texter says, about the issues with long-term use of PPIs. Thank you. Now, what is that? A PPI is a medicine for acid reflux or a stomach ulcer. So a lot of listeners might be familiar with the trade names like Nexium, Prilosec, or Protonix. The generic names often end with, they almost sound like uh, Omeprazole, Pantoprazole, Rebeprazole. So in general, these started to be prescribed for people for acid reflux forever, and someone would be on it for years and years. What we've come to discover is there are some long-term risks they're not a huge risk. So the first thing to say is that it's not as if you're doomed to having a high risk with this. We have noticed that some people have a higher risk of pneumonia when being on the medications. And then there are some effects on bone health as well. So in general, uh, I'm a less is more type of guy. So if you've been on this medicine for a long time, you might want to talk to your doctor about saying, do you still need the medicine? There are other similar medicines called uh, H2 blockers, one of which is Zantac or ranitidine. These don't seem to have as severe of the long-term effects. So if you've been on the medicine for a few years, it's always a good question when you go to see your doctor to say, do I still need this medicine, especially since we know that PPIs now are not perfectly safe for the long term. They may have some effect on a few of these areas like an increased risk of pneumonia. Hmm, interesting. Back to the phones we go, Doctor. Steve is calling from uh, Buffalo. Steve, you're on with Dr. Ives. Uh, thanks, gentlemen. Safe. My uh, <clears throat> future wife uh, has had, uh, she's been on Harboni for close to a year that cured her uh, hepatitis. Now she has uh, uh, chronic uh, bladder infections, and she's been dealing with this for over a year. Um, it, it jumps from one infection to another. We've been uh, to the Mayo, been to HCMC, been to North Memorial. Now she's on Emeron. Um, I'm just wondering if the uh, if the uh, uh, shoot Harvoni had caused this. So Harvoni is the, the trade name of treatment for hepatitis C. So hepatitis C, the treatment used to be very long and painful. It was like taking a medicine that made you feel like you had the flu for nine months in a row. And now Harvoni is a treatment that is very effective for curing hepatitis C, meaning making it go away where it would never come back. Uh, in general, one of the side effects of Harvoni in general is not bladder infection. So I'm unaware that that would be a common cause. It sounds like you've had quite the evaluation, so I'm sorry to hear that uh, your partner had such a complicated evaluation for recurrent or ongoing bladder infections, but the Harvoni medicines are not a common cause of bladder infections. They do have some side effects, so they require monitoring. Harvoni is a, a fairly safe treatment for hepatitis C, but bladder infections are not a usual side effect. 
All right, very good. Uh, Catherine is calling from uh, Blaine, I think. Catherine, you're on CCO. Good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. I uh, I have a question about a prednisone burst, how that really helped me so much last spring when I had really the creepy crud. I couldn't, I was so sick. <laughs> um, the doctor gave me a prednisone burst along with another, you know, um, a Z-pack, and man, it just kicked it out of my system so fast. So I'm just kind of curious as to what uh, prednisone does to your system. So prednisone is a steroid or what we call a corticosteroid. It's used to treat inflammation in the body. So it's fairly safe for use in the short term. Uh, as some listeners could do attest to, prednisone has a lot of complicated effects over the long term. So a prednisone burst is often used for someone who has a disease with inflammation, so like asthma or COPD, where you're having an attack of that. Sometimes people will use prednisone to kind of calm the immune system or tone it down. We found that in some cases of real severe, uh, you said creepy crud, to use your word, some cases where someone will have a cough and so forth, Sometimes the body trying to cure the cough is just causing this immune system response where things are ramped up and the prednisone kind of calms that down. So in rare cases, uh, prednisone is used to treat inflammation. In general, it's pretty safe for a short-term use, but it is not a safe long-term medicine. It's, it's something that's complicated to manage. No, Very good. I think we have time for one more call. Lynn is calling with a question. Lynn, you're on with the doctor. Yes, good afternoon for taking my call. Um, I have got a question. I have been on antibiotics for an infected, my both of my big toes, um, but I've got an ongoing infection. Now, I think it probably may be directly involved with ingrown toenails, but the infection will not go away. Now, I've been trying to treat it with um, um, infect, with uh, um, some infections, um, ointments and stuff, but I cannot 